I invite you to turn this morning to the book of James, chapter 4. We're going to go back here to our study of how faith works, how our lives, new life that we have in Jesus Christ, has ramifications on how we live our everyday lives here on this earth. And last week, we began looking at this idea of following the will of God, which we find here in James chapter 4, verses 14, or sorry, 13 through 17. And we looked at the first couple of verses last time, and so we're going to get more now into the meat of, of how do we find God's will in our lives, what does that look like, and how do we follow that each and every day. Let's look at James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you, say, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have. Thank you for the privilege we have to hold in, your, in our hands your word today. And we thank you that you have preserved it and you have given us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand these things. And we ask today that you would open our hearts and minds now, that you would use your word in our lives, that you would expose our sin. And Lord, that's an uncomfortable thing to ask, but it's a necessary thing, that we must see our sin, that we can see the hope of the gospel. And Lord, I ask that for one who may be here today who doesn't have a relationship with you, would you continue to show them that you have provided a way for them to be right with you? Lord, for Christians that are here today, would you continue to show us those things which we tolerate in our lives, which we shouldn't, the things we don't do that you, that you know we should be doing and we know, or would you help us um, to make those things right today? Would you bring us to the point of surrender that we can serve you fully and see you uh, most effectively use us in this present life. Lord, we ask that you would help us to go out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your truth. I ask that you would give me words to say, man, not say anything here that would distract or take away from what you want to do in our hearts today. We'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know about your family, but our family from time to time enjoys doing puzzles. You know, those 1,000-piece puzzles that you find at Target and pray that all the pieces are there when you get done. And a few months ago, we purchased, um, and over the course of the next several months, because it never happens right away, you know, you have to put it away and get it back out and put it away and get it back out about 12 times in our house before it gets done. But we put together this 1,000-piece puzzle, and it combined two of our favorite things. You know, we enjoyed doing the puzzles, but it was a puzzle of Lego figures, and so that was, I was especially passionate about that, you know. And the kids loved to get in on the action, you know, trying to figure out where everything goes. And along the way, we study very intensely every little detail of that picture that comes on the box, or sometimes a little insert in the box. And then we try to discern each little piece where it goes, you know, we look for the little colors and this must go there and well it doesn't go there and it's really frustrating when it doesn't have anything but just white on it you know and you're trying to figure out where that might fit have you ever in life felt like your life was one giant puzzle like 
Perhaps you've tried to make sense of the pieces and tried to figure out what God was doing or what God's will for your life really was. Perhaps there's some difference you felt because you think, well, I don't really have a picture like the, like the one on the box to look at. In this crazy world and in our crazy lives, it's easy to feel that way. However, we don't have to feel, live feeling like we've, we're searching for God's will all the time. Nor should we feel like we don't have the answers because God has given us his will for our lives and the answers that we need for every day. It's not only possible to know, for you to know what God's will is for your life, it's possible to live that every day. And what we see here in, the, in this passage, we said this last week from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, is because God is in sovereign control, I must submit my will to his and seek to live out his plan for my life in all things. And, and what we established, we had to establish last week, and what you have to establish first of all, before you can begin to unpack and understand what is the will of God for your life, you have to understand who is in control. And, and, and who has the ultimate and final say in our lives. And the ultimate and final say in our lives, and what we do, and what we don't do, and how we have a relationship with God, and, 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 and how we spend eternity with him, and how we live in light of that eternity, goes back to God and God alone. He is sovereign and in control of all things. He is the one to whom we must submit ourselves in our lives. And we, we'll look here in just a second at some of the things we talked about last week. And even the things that we do and go about every day, we understand that as we make those plans and we go through our lives, and, and we maybe make long-term plans, that those are subject to the, the sovereign will of our God. And so let's catch back up where we were from last week. And we'll finish out the passage, Lord willing, this week. And what we saw in verses 13 and 14 last week is that there's this group here that James is talking about. And and really, I mean, this group can be applied to, to all of us, though, if we think about it. This idea of precluding God's will in our lives. James paints the picture of these businessmen who say that have this plan that they're going to go and they're going to do such and such a thing and then what they're going to do is they're going to they're buy and sell, they're going to make money, and, and they're going to do really well over the course of this year. And what James says is there's grave danger in this temporal focus. There's, there's a grave danger in living our lives with no thought as to what God may want for us and with no respect as to God's control over every situation. James gives us this image, as we said, of these businessmen with their self-confident strategy, that they have it all worked out. And these businessmen, when it came down to it, they trusted their savvy more than they did the Savior. James is not condemning the fact that they made plans. He's condemning the fact that they put their faith in those plans and not in God. These ones in, this, in the illustration, this, this idea of living without any concept of God being in control, it's practical atheism. You know, it's, maybe it's not outright saying, well, I don't believe in God, but it's living like God doesn't matter. And it's foolish, James says, because first of all, we have a very temporal knowledge of our lives. We cannot possibly guarantee the outcome of any of our plans because we don't know what lies ahead in our own lives. Your life can change in an instant. The things that you have on the, on the calendar for tomorrow can be gone. I think that the thing that brought that home to me I know that nobody wants to talk about this, but two years ago, when we were going through the whole lockdowns and all of that with, with the COVID thing, 
just to, to look at the sheer volume of things we had wiped off the calendar in our own personal lives, in our business, in the business world, in our churches. I mean, our lives changed, literally changed overnight. You know, we went from all of these things, I remember in our, own, in our own lives, we went from all of these things we had planned in ministry and mission trips and all of this to just, well, just stay home for a couple months. We cannot possibly know what lies ahead. The only thing that we can be sure that will never change is that things are always changing. And so here, James is speaking with great irony to these ones, saying, you plan so far ahead and you trust in those plans, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Therefore, it is rather arrogant to trust solely in our plans without realizing who is really in control. So there's a temporal knowledge that, that, that causes a problem here, but there's also a temporal status that causes an issue here. Because James says that your life is like a vapor, it's here and then it's gone. We do not know when our time on this earth is up. And so to live this frail temporal life with no regard for the eternal God is foolish indeed. Because your life is here for just a little while and then you're gone. And as one person said, it's not that your life is so short, it's that eternity is so long. And we have only this time to make a difference for our eternity, to, to, to be right with God and have a relationship with him and to live for him. So it's not wrong to make plans, but we must keep those plans in their proper perspective. And it's that perspective that James calls us to consider this proper response to God's will. And we got, it, we got into verse 15 a little bit last week, and we began to see that God's will is a way of life for those who follow God. It's not enough to recognize our frailty and the unpredictable nature of our world. I mean, that's where we have to start to find the perspective, right? You have to understand that we are frail, dependent beings, and we have to understand that we live in a temporal, ever-changing world. But as I said last week, if that is the only place you stop, you're going to end up with a severe case of anxiety. And you've probably been there. When things are changing all around you, have you ever found that you hate change? And everything starts to change, and you start to focus on the change and the feelings that come out of that, and you just you don't know what to do yourself. And if that's the only place we live, that's, that's what we're going to get. The second step is, is we, have to, we have to realize the temporal nature of our, of our world and the temporal nature of ourselves, and then realize the unchanging and eternal nature of our God. God, help us in whatever changes we may face, For he is the one who brings these things to pass. And so verse 14, verse 14 here, or verse um, says, you know, I'm sorry, verse 15 says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that." that. That has to become our mindset. That has to become why we do what we do. It has to drive everything about us. It's not some trite phrase that we throw around, if God willing or this or that, but we have to genuinely live that out. We have to understand that God's will is greater than mine, and God's will must be my own. As as one pastor said, for the Christian, doing God's will is an act of worship, and worship is a way of life. So because God is eternal, I must trust him. And because God is loving, I must follow him. Because God is sovereign, I must submit to him. And so we, this is where we left off last week. We brought it all down to this question, okay? We brought it all down to a proper response of God's will that we recognize 
that, that to, to think so temporally is to preclude the eternal will of God. And we recognize that he is sovereign and he is in control and he is over to follow. So it still leaves us with this question. What is God's will or how do we know God's will? And I know some of you came back this week just because you want to hear the answer to that question. So what is God's will? Because so much is made over God's will for your life. How many of you will be willing to admit in here today, you've, you've asked that question of yourself some, one time. Well, what is God's will about this? You ever, yeah? I mean, I worked with teens for, for many, many years, and that was something that was constantly on their minds. It should be constantly on the minds of all of us, you know? And we say, sometimes we use phrases like, well, the best place to be is in the center of God's will. And we often view God's will then as specific choices that God should direct us to make. Can I I give you some examples of those choices? Now, these are including but not limited to the following. Who should my friends be? Where should I go to college? Should I go to college? If I do, what should I major in or pursue in my career? Whom should I date or marry? Where should I move? What job should I take? What house should I buy? I mean, on and on, right? And so here's the question. Should we, are, are these questions important? Yeah, every single one of those questions, and we could add many more to the list, are extremely crucial questions that we have to ask in our lives. And so should we want to do exactly God, what God wants of us to do in each of those situations? Yes. But can I tell you there's a lie here? There's a lie we all buy into. Okay, I'm going to start right here. The lie is this. Well, I don't know the answer to these specific questions, so I don't know the will of God for my life. That is not true. The truth is this. God has clearly given us his will for our lives. Here it is. Glorify him. Glorify God. And and we're going to take time to unpack this. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you like the the pastor cop-out answer. Be like, yeah, have a great week, you know. Let's unpack it a little bit. The Bible is full of God's will for our lives. It shows us how to live. It teaches us about God and our relationship to him. It gives us very specific things God says to do and not to do. The commentator Warren Wiersbe said, Every commandment in the Bible addressed to believers is part of the will of God and must be obeyed. Take a man like Solomon. If you're not familiar with Solomon, he was the third king of Israel. He was the king who had it all. He was extremely rich. The nation of Israel was enjoying tremendous prosperity. And Solomon started out pretty well. He started out seeking the wisdom of God in his life to rule the people there. But Solomon, later on in his life, went his own way. He lived a life that was consumed with his own wants and his own desires and his own plans. And he he wrote some of the the scriptures here under inspiration of God. And he wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. And near the end of Ecclesiastes, we read this verse. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. Now, here was a man in Solomon who could control more than most, for he was king. Remember last week I said, there's not much in life that you and I can control. 
Solomon is kind of the rare exception to most of those rules. Okay, now, he, can't, he still couldn't control things like the weather, right? I mean, God's in control of those things. But think about this king. Whatever he desired to do, he most often could make it happen. Whatever he desired to have, he could most often acquire it. Whoever he wanted to spend time with, he could often buy off, command, or coerce them into his life. Wherever he wanted to go, I mean, Solomon could make a way to get there. And this he did over and over and over again in his life. He filled his life with whatever he desired. And at the end of it all, he realized how foolish it had all been. The only thing that matters in life, he said, is to do God's will, to fear God and keep his commandments. God's will is found in God's word and obeying him in all things. This is the will of God. I want want you to consider another man by the name of Joshua. We read from Joshua chapter 1 this morning. Joshua was the man who succeeded Moses. Moses, under God's authority and under God's leadership, Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to, he was to lead them to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, to what we know as the nation of Israel. And Moses, through his disobedience, was not allowed to enter the promised land. So Joshua was chosen to succeed him and to be the leader for the conquest of the promised land because the land of Canaan was full of ungodly people. It was full of, of people who, who did not serve God at all, didn't do anything. They, they, were, they were disobedient and wicked and sinful. And so here is Joshua. He is to lead the conquest of the land of Canaan. He needed to know what lay ahead of him in this land. Now it was clearly God's will that Joshua dispossess the Canaanites of the land. And bring God's people the victory. God had promises to Abraham back in Genesis. And now look what God says to Joshua in Joshua 1.6. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So is it God's will for Joshua that he will lead the people to victory in the land of Canaan? Yes. Now, would you have questions? I would have a lot of questions. If you know anything about the history of Israel, the, the first thing they got to face, they got to get over a river, the Jordan River, that's overflowing its banks. And oh, by the way, there's this huge city behind there called Jericho. It's got all these walls. And by the way, you're leading a bunch of people who aren't warriors. They're agricultural people. I would have a lot of questions. God, how are we going to beat Jericho? Lord, remember all the giants we encountered when we sent the spies? And, and what about... But you know what God doesn't do? God doesn't do what we, if we were in that situation, would have wanted him to do. He doesn't hand Joshua a book, you know, some kind of how-to guide. You know, Milk and Honey 101, The Conquest of Canaan, right? Wouldn't that be great? And when you come to Jericho, you're going to do this, and this is what's going to happen. And when you go to Ai, you're going to do this, and this is what's going to happen. No, God doesn't do that. He does not tell him the full plan. You know what he did instead? He gave him... His will for Joshua's life. Keep going in Joshua chapter 1. You read this. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What did God tell Joshua? Know my word. Internalize it and obey it. That was the will of God for Joshua's life. If Joshua would do that, if, God, if Joshua would meditate on that, if Joshua would know what God had said, then he would be successful in the life that called, God called him to lead. In essence, God said, Joshua, you walk with me and I'll show you the way. The same is true of our lives today. For the how and the what in God's will for our lives. The answers to life's questions come as we live out daily our relationship to God. And you know, we don't always know the how in our lives. We, don't, we can't sit here and say, you know, five years from now, this is how I'll be serving God. This is, you know, sometimes we may use the word where we'll be serving God. This is, I mean, we, 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 we look back on our lives you ever done that? You think, well, five years ago, what was I doing? Whatever I considered. Okay, look, I'll be your case study. Five years ago, I'm sitting in Atlanta, Georgia. I didn't think I'd be standing in Beaverton, Michigan. But I know, I'll just tell you right now, folks, I know I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Because why? Not because I'm some special spooky pastor person, right? Why? Because we have to follow the Lord daily. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but Consistent. When we follow God and his word, he shows us the way to go. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 37, verse 4, he said, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We read that verse sometimes, and we, we kind of sometimes think, Oh, what does that, you know, that mean? If, I, if I'm following God, then you know, that new Lamborghini is going to show up in the driveway. I've just been desiring it, you know. No, what it means is as we delight in God, you know, the more you delight in God, the more the things of God become who you are. You cannot spend time with God and not be unchanged. So you begin to delight yourself in the Lord, you begin to spend time with God, and he begins to implant his own desires in your life. And recognize this, you and I, we cannot force our way on God. Sometimes we try to do that, right? We think things like, you know, God, I just know that you want me to do, we fill in the blank, right? Well, God, I'll, I'll only do this. I know you want me to do this, but I'll only do this if I can. Or God, I know that this is the person that you want me to, to be with, or you want me to. No, what do we need to do? We have to stop, listen. Spend time with him because to force our way is, and to ignore God is sin. Instead, we need to be walking with him and obeying him and fighting sin with his help in order to know his direction in our lives. And so, but, but let me just revisit what we said here at the beginning. That when it comes to living God's will, sometimes I like to say it this way. We often have a big problem. And by that I mean this. 
that often we relegate the will of God to those big questions in our lives. We never really trot that phrase out until we just don't have it. We don't think we know the answer to something. Well, then we just then all of a sudden we don't know the will of God. And those questions are certainly important, and those questions certainly are big. I'm not trying to minimize how large those questions loom in our lives. But you can't know these answers unless you follow daily God's will in your own life. And I remind you of what Micah 6.8 says. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? God's will for our lives is to be consumed with obeying and glorifying him. That's God's will for our lives. If you will do that, you will be able to know God's will in the big moments, so to speak, of your life. If you do not walk with God daily, then you cannot know him personally. A relationship with God is just like any other relationship you have with a person. If you do not foster that relationship, there's nothing there. If you are not making the choices of submission to him regularly, how do you expect to know his will at the crossroads of your life? If you, you cannot tolerate, excuse, and embrace sin and expect to be close to God. James has just said this all throughout James chapter 4. And without closeness to God, you cannot even legitimately say what James said in verse 15, if the Lord wills, because you frankly don't care what God says anyway. The will of God is daily living in him, submitting all that I do to his word and calling. And in so doing, I'll be able to discern with his help whatever my next step is. But it starts with the daily, walking with God in all things. And you can have confidence to live life if you consistently walk in the ways of God. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? No, instead, in our own sinful pride, sometimes we allow that to, to come into our lives and take over and lead us into disobedience. And we see that here. This is the last thing we see in this passage in verses 16 and 17, the prideful disobedience to God's will. In verse 16, here's an arrogant rejection, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So while living as a practical atheist, placing hopes and dreams and plans and not submitting them to God is bad, there's a step beyond this. That when we now know that we need to trust in the Lord and not in ourselves, yet we give ourselves the credit anyway with no regard to God, we're no longer practical theists, uh, practical atheists were self-theists. And there's a real and nasty arrogance that's found in living a seemingly self-sufficient life. Because God has created us to be dependent on him. God has not created us to be dependent on ourselves. God has not created us to be dependent on another person. God has created us to be dependent on him. And when we do not recognize him as our creator and king and instead use the things he has given us to our own ends and means, we are throwing it in, his, in God's face. And boasting, James says, in anything but the Lord and his great work is arrogance 
and sin. And when we leave God out of our decision-making processes and our thoughts, we in effect tell him he is not needed. It is instead a, well, look at me and what I'm going to do mentality. And I think of the parable in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told of the rich fool. In this parable, here is a man who enjoyed a bumper crop, and he had more than he could possibly store in his barns. And upon seeing the result of the harvest, he looked around and found great satisfaction in himself. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 19, it says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For the rest of, he figured he was set for the rest of his life. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how great it is. But little did he know that the rest of his life was a few short hours. Jesus goes on in the parable in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, whose will those things be which you have provided? This man lived contrary to the reality that God was in ultimate control. Therefore, he was a fool. We cannot live contrary to the reality that God is sovereign and has a plan for my life and get away with it. Let's consider Joshua once again for a minute. What was Joshua's commission? What is the will of God for Joshua's life? Know what I've said, internalize it, live it out, and I'll show you the way to go. Then you will have good success. And so, God shows Joshua the way to victory at Jericho. And you can read about that there in Joshua chapter 6. And there was an incredible, miraculous victory that God brought about for the people of Israel on, uh, over the city of Jericho. And so, understandably so, because let's be human, right? Understandably so, Joshua and the people feel really good about themselves. Because they've defeated, now with God's help, this incredible city. However, they did not let the full weight of the moment sink into their lives. And what's the full weight of the moment? That God brought them the victory. That God gave them what he promised he would give them. And instead... They used that victory to pump up their own morale. And in the process, they fell out of step with God. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 3. And they returned to Joshua. So so after Jericho, there's another city called Ai. And Joshua sent spies to go see what that city was like. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Hey, We just overcame a huge city. This AI, ah, it's puny. It'll stand a chance. Just send a few people. You know what? There was a problem. The problem was this. There was sin in the camp of Israel. There was a man by the name of Achan who had disobeyed God. And he had taken some things out of the city of Jericho. When God had been very specific and said, you are to take nothing from that city, it is to be an offering to the Lord. And so... There was great trouble that befell the people of Israel because of this. Because Israel, thinking they had it all handled, went into battle against Ai, and they were routed and lost 36 men as they fled from the pe- before the people of Ai. 
And we look at that and we say, well, I mean, come on. Joshua had no way of knowing that Achan committed this sin. Did he? I ask you the question, did he? If he had spent time with God? If he had asked, continued to meditate on things of God and seek God's help and his direction? Instead, he listened to the people. He listened to his own gut feeling. Hey, we got this. And he sent those men to their death in battle. Now, after this horrible incident, Joshua consulted with God. He dealt with the sin in the camp, and God gave him instructions on how to deal with Ai, which, by the way, they were far different than the plan that Joshua and his men had devised. But not long after this, we see in the life of Joshua that disaster struck again. There was a group of people called the Gibeonites. They were inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And they were, they, they were not happy about what was going on in the land. That, that here were the people of Israel were coming, and, and God was, was, was giving them victory and giving them the land as he had promised to. And so they sought to deceive Joshua and the people. And so what they did is, is they, were local, they, they were local people there, but they made it look like they came from a long ways away, and they used some clever tricks and things. And we see what happened here. It says in Joshua 9, 14 and 15, And the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't know the story, that this treaty would haunt Israel for years to come. And this is possibly one of, if not the greatest failure in the life of Joshua. And these two things in Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 9 happened, why? Because of the arrogance of Joshua and the people. They felt they could do it without God. And they paid dearly for it. You and I are much the same. Perhaps you served God faithfully at one time of your life. Perhaps it wasn't that long ago that you felt you had real, true victory and you saw God doing amazing things in your life, but now you wonder where God is. You wonder why he isn't working in your heart like he once used to. Our pride will always keep us from being close to God and seeing him work in our lives. Because we cannot make decisions apart from his wisdom and expect it all just to work out. We cannot live in disobedience to the very basic things of God and enjoy his everyday presence with us. If you are tolerating sin in your life, you, are, you, you know that it is wrong, there is no way you can have peace with God. Again, I refer you back up to, to James chapter 4 and verse 8 and 9 where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We must repent of our arrogance and confess our dependence on him, seeking to follow him in all things. And if we neglect to do this, that neglect is every bit of sin as anything else. We see that in verse 17, the sinful neglection. Therefore, James says, because of all of this, he wraps everything up here to him who knows to do good and does not do it. To him, it is sin. Oftentimes, when we think of the word sin, 
we think of something that we do, something that we commit. And indeed, often sin does involve some type of activity on our part. Whether it be actions or thoughts or words that we may make against God and his word. But just as sinful as the things we do are the things that we omit from our lives as well. When God tells us to do something and we don't do it, that is just as sinful as doing something God told us not to do. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 25 when he talks about the judgment of, of people who, who are cast into hell. They're judged, why? Not just because of things they did, because of things they didn't do. And we'll use all manner of excuses to justify our actions. We'll say things, well, I mean, that's just your opinion. Or, well, that's not really what it means. Or sometimes we even cover it up with a phrase like, well, I don't think that's very biblical. And we know very well that that's what the Bible says. These are all masks we use to cover up the sins of omission. And not far behind the sins of omission are sins of commission. Because you begin to leave out the things of God, you're going to be embracing the things that aren't godly as well. God's will for us is to obey him in all things. And so failing to do so and submit ourselves to him and his wisdom is sin. This starts very basically with a relationship with him. God in his word tells us that he is holy and that he cannot tolerate our sin. He is set apart from sin. God tells us that he is not only holy, but that he is just and therefore cannot overlook our sin. He tells us that we cannot have a relationship with him apart from recognizing these facts, admitting them before him, and then repenting, turning away from our sin, and placing our full and complete trust in his love and his grace. The love of God reached down to us and provided a way for us to be right with him. You cannot come to God on the merit of another person. You cannot say, well, I've always believed in God. That's not true. It's not possible. You cannot hope that one day you'll be good enough to get to God. You must agree with God about what what he says about this. And to to neglect to do so, to say, well, I'm not really going to do that, is a declaration of a rejection of God. And that will bring you to an eternity in hell, separated from God, paying the price for your sin. As a Christian, if you have a relationship with God, God calls you to live for him. He calls, first of all, for your personal commitment to him and his word. He calls you to actively seek out what he wants to teach you and implementing it, implementing it in your life with his help. You know how he does that? Through his word. He uses his word in your life. You need time with God. He calls not only for a personal, but if you have a you know, if you're if you're married or you have a family, he calls for your familial commitment to him. He calls you to lead your spouse, he calls you to lead your family closer to God. That is responsibility. That, that Christians who have spouses and families take on. 
He calls for your corporate commitment to him in a local church, making yourself a member of that local body that you may fully and completely find accountability there and edify others. So the, God, the will of God, or following God's will, or what is God's will for my life, these aren't, this isn't a Christian catchphrase. It's a life's calling. And failure to follow God's calling in your life is a failure to obey him. And this can have both temporal and eternal consequences. We have, as we said, but a short time on this earth, and what we do here matters for eternity. And if you have not placed your full and complete faith in Jesus Christ alone, then there is no true lasting victory for you. But if you will do so, you will find an incredible, eternal relationship with God. And if you have come to Christ in faith, what is the next step that God is calling you to take? What, what is the sin that he has convicted you of you in your life that you need to do something about with his help? What is the practice or the action that you know is right, but you've refused to do anything with it? That first step to addressing that wrong is the hardest one. Have you ever, has God ever convicted you of sin in your life? And the first step is the hardest step. To actually start to get it out of your life with his help. Because sometimes that requires us to go to another person and talk about it. Because that sin involves somebody else. Or we need someone else's help. And so we, we remain what we think, we remain trapped, so to speak. Because we don't want to go out and make that first step. But God will meet us there and will give us the strength that we need to do that. And you can live a life fully in the will of God. And you can have confidence every day as you walk with him. The, the, the secret to, 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 there's no secret, okay, but we'll use that phrase, right? The secret to living a confident Christian life is to walk with God on a regular basis. To know who he is. To follow him for yourself. Because God is in sovereign control, I must submit my will to him or to his and seek to live out his plan for my life and all things. The will of God isn't some empty Christian mumbo-jumbo phrase. It isn't some unknowable mystery and it isn't some secret that's revealed to the cleanest of Christians. The will of God is plain and open for every person on the face of this earth. And it simply starts with this, that you must know him as your Lord and Savior. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt in your mind that you have a relationship with God and that you will spend eternity with him when you die. And you can also Enjoy the incredible joy of a relationship with God in this life and know in your life complete and total peace and fulfillment in him. And that is a promise that nothing else can give you. No experience, no person, no possession can offer you what God offers you. Doing the will of God is real and true worship for the Christian. It isn't just 
a way to live or some pastor's idea of a way to live. It's God's way to live. And God calls his followers to live in light of himself. We are to submit every part of our being to following him every day. And let's be honest, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we struggle to submit and in pride and sin we go our own way. But there is hope for you. No matter what you struggle with, no matter your reservations, whatever you have failed to give to God to surrender to him, I promise you, you're not the first person to struggle with it. And, you, and I promise you that God is ready to help you see true victory in your life as well. So whether it's something you've omitted, like spending time, maybe something like spending real focused time with him on your own, or since you've committed against him and others that you know are wrong, there is true victory in God. And if you like help in something like that, if you like someone to come alongside and, and point you to what the scripture says to help make this right, I'd be privileged to do so or to help connect you with someone who can help walk you through what the Bible says. But remember that God's will is not only knowable, it's doable. But we can't put our trust in ourselves. We have to place our lives in the hands of our sovereign, loving, and caring God, giving him everything that we are. He is the one who has created us, and he is the one who has given himself for us. And so in him, we can find these things. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and your care. We thank you that in your wisdom, you have given us your word that we may truly know what it is you desire of us. And Lord, what is it you desire of us? You desire a true and complete submission to you, a hunger and a desire to follow you. And Lord, you promise that if we will do so, you will meet us there. That if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And Lord, I ask that you would help us on a daily basis to seek to do that which would honor and glorify you. Lord, I ask that you would make us uncomfortable with our sin. That you truly would stir up in our consciousness and in our hearts that which is wrong and that you would give us the courage to make it right. Lord, it's so easy for us to ball up our fists and to shake them in the face of God and say, this is mine, it belongs to me. And Lord, what you really want is us to put our hands up and surrender and say, what is it you want us to do? And may you help us to find true joy in you in following your will. Lord, I ask for those who may be here today who are still struggling with this, with, with still wrapping their minds around what it means to, to have a relationship with a holy and just God, because of his love and his grace, Lord, would you give them the courage to speak to someone today that they could find answers from your word, that they could, they could walk out of this place today knowing they would spend eternity with you. Or to the Christian who, who has secreted away a sin, does want anybody else to know about it, but is paying the consequences of that sin every day, Lord, I ask that you would give them the courage to find the accountability to make it right, that they may find answers in your word. Or to the, the broken relationships that we have in our lives that we know we need to make right. May we do something with those. To the simple things that we neglect every day, such as spending time with you and showing your love to our family. 
Lord, we could go on and on and on about things you may be doing in our hearts and lives. And we just ask that you would do your work. And would you help us to make this right? It's so easy to walk out of this place and not think about these things again. Or would you continue to hammer these truths home in our hearts? We ask that you would be with us now as we prepare to leave, that you would watch over and protect us, that we would honor you and glorify you this afternoon. Bring us back to worship together tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.